Welcome to the Get Out and Try podcast. I'm your host, Katie Axel. This episode is sponsored by First State Bank and Trust. Hi, this is Jason Howard, president of First State Bank and Trust. We understand that switching banks can be a lot of work, and that's why we're here to help. With our tools, you can transition your accounts at your own pace, on your own schedule, and start banking local. We believe the more you can do in one place, the more you can achieve. Contact us today to start the switch. First State Bank and Trust. Achieve more together in Bayport, Oak Park Heights, Stillwater, Hudson, and online at fsbt.com. Member FDIC Equal Housing Lender. This next interview was so fun because I got to visit the animals at Eagle Eye Farm in River Falls, Wisconsin. If you haven't been there yet, you've got to schedule a tour. It's wonderful. A couple things I want you to know about this interview. It was a long interview with a lot of really interesting information. I couldn't stop asking questions. Now, the other thing I want you to know is that I upgraded my podcasting equipment and I'm still learning some stuff. So I have to warn you. I had some hard lessons learned with the audio on this interview, and it might sound a little bit wonky at times. I hope you barely notice, but if you do, please give me some grace as I'm learning this new equipment. It's a two-part interview with this week's episode digging into how someone might get into alpaca farming. Check it out. How long have you been here? It was two years in July, and this was formerly a small horse farm, but the folks had relocated and they had it vacant for two years. So we had to completely retrofit it for alpacas and most of the outbuildings you see and so forth we've put in with the exception of the big barn, but this was completely renovated. Yeah, it looks and feels like a lot of construction has happened. It has. Very new look, very clean. I keep things very clean. Our crew keeps it very clean. Yeah. So how did you land in River Falls? So we were in Duluth. Well, we started out in St. Louis and grew up in St. Louis. And then Carrie is still in the medical field. I was in the medical field for 32 years. And we decided we wanted a change in life. And we always loved coming north. We vacationed north quite a bit. Loved it up this way. Loved the summers, beautiful summers. And I dog sledded at the time. And I wanted to start rescuing sled dogs. And we did that for a while, and that was hard emotionally because you find out that they don't all work out, and then you have to find forever homes for them. So that was tough for me. And then I blew my knee out and had to have surgery. So it was time for the next next thing, and I always wanted alpacas. And so we wound up moving to Duluth, to a farm in Duluth, and started my alpaca journey there, or our alpaca journey. And then we kind of outgrew that space. Things were extrapolating. And we knew we wanted to do agritourism, so we knew we were going to have to get closer to the cities. And I just happened to be, I would occasionally look online uh, for properties, and I found this one. And I knew it needed a lot of work, but I saw the potential. And uh, it happened to be in River Falls. So we love the area. So that's a lot to unpack. I want to start with how does one get to the point of always wanting to have an alpaca farm? I mean, I always had a love for animals. Originally, before I got into human medicine, I wanted to go into veterinary medicine, but I knew that my my association with the animals, I knew that would be really tough. Originally, it started out, I just wanted about three to five alpacas to have as pets. We met one alpaca who had a lot of show potential, and then things have kind of taken off from it. What was your earliest memory of seeing an alpaca? In my 20s. In your 20s. Even when we lived in St. Louis, um, when I was in my 30s, I bought property that I want to build on when I retired, because I want to retire early. Both my parents died fairly young, and they were the type of folks that always said, 
you know, one day when we retire, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, we're going to do this. Yeah. And my mom actually died when she was only a few years older than me wow. at this point. And she died of ovarian cancer. My father died of lung cancer. And so they never really got to bring that to fruition, mm-hmm. you know. So I, I always knew I wanted to retire early. And even at that point, I bought property and it would allowed horses, but there was nothing in the provisions about alpacas. And so before we did the contracts. I made sure I put in there that I was allowed to have alpacas. There's something about them that always drew me to them. I just knew I was going to have them at some point. Do you know what it is about them that draws you toward them? You know, I think they're just so peaceful. They're just very peaceful creatures. They don't make a lot of noise. They're easy on the earth. They kind of seem like big shaggy dogs. Yeah. You know, so yeah, I think that was, that was it. So you got your first three to five alpaca up in, no, down in St. Louis first. No, in, it, we actually got our first alpacas in Duluth. In Duluth. Okay. Yeah. And so it started off, we wound up with six initially. And I always think things happen for a reason. Mm-hmm. You know, the universe has a bigger plan for you. We hadn't brought those home to the farm yet. We kept them at the farms we bought them from. And then next thing you know, within a few months, we went from six to 20. And then that's when we were like, we need a bigger place, you know, because we knew things were going to kind of take off from there. Yeah. And so that's when we found this. So at that point, we brought four home and we didn't bring the others home because we knew we were relocating and we didn't want to have to put them under the stress of going from one farm to another farm to another farm. So yeah. um, we just left them where they were at. And then once we got settled here, we brought them here. As you started to get into this, how did you learn how to care for an alpaca and do all of the things that you need to do to have an entire farm of them? Liking alpacas as long as I have, I've always kind of, I've always read about them, but we had mentors, other alpaca farms that have helped us out. We learned a lot through them. We attended a lot of seminars, read a lot of books, and then our kind of our governing body that all of our alpacas are registered through and they sanction our shows, the Alpaca Owners Association, we're members of that. They have wonderful resources on their websites, videos and how-tos and things like that. So anytime there's a seminar, we try to we try to go, even if it's just online. Any big lessons that you learned in the process that you couldn't find on a video? You know, a lot of it's trial and error. So my biggest thing is, you know, as you said earlier, the barn's really clean. So I'm a little OCD. That's courtesy of my mother. And, and so I like to keep things very clean. So an interesting factoid about alpacas is they are communal pottiers, which means once one goes, they leave a scent and the other goes on top and the other on top and the other on top. So they pick a spot in a pen that they go. So it's kind of centric in a a pen, which makes cleanup easy. But I kind of capitalized on that behavior and thought, well, you know, if, if they pick a spot, I can litter box train these guys. So I built these big four by four foot litter boxes and put pine pellets in it. And you prime it, you put a little bit of their excrement in there, and sure enough, it worked. The problem is you can't have pine pellets outside because once they get wet, they just turn to like sawdust, and so you're kind of defeating the purpose. So we had the litter boxes inside, but when you bring new animals in and you're training them, they don't always catch on as quickly. So my lesson I learned is don't do that. You know, so <laughs> so I stopped that. I have a litter box. When the alpacas are first born, they go in a bonding pen with their mother. And then the next step is they go out to another pen where there is a litter box. And so the mother trains the baby. So they get that on their foundation. And then we put them out into the pens. And then the nice thing is once they get in a pen, they establish their potty spot. So we kind of gone 
away with the litter boxes. Okay. So that's one of the things I kind of learned along the way. Like, okay, you know. nice thought, but that's not going to work. Yeah. All of our animals are barn trained, meaning that they know not to go potty on the inside. They only go potty on the outside. We have a very clean barn. So that's what people comment about all the time when they come is that whenever you walk into the barn, it doesn't smell like potty. The hard part is when we get bad storms. The barns are always open. They always have access to the barns 24-7. They go in and out as they, as they please. What does your calendar look like as far as how you care for the animals? In the winter right now, um, we make sure that they do have access to barns at all times. And we have mats that we put in their pens. Most of the barn is concrete, but we put their, like a sizal show mat. Mm-hmm. And in the wintertime, we stuff straw under there. So there's an insulating factor. So they're not laying directly to the concrete because mm-hmm. they kind of control their temperature through their tummies. And then we also have infrared heat. So you can't really use forced air on animals because forced air would warm their lungs too. So they're taking in warmed air and then they go outside and it's cold air and they're constantly making that change. And just like we know, when you go from inside to outside all the time, how that messes with your sinuses and your lungs, it would really affect them. So you don't really do that with animals, but we do infrared heat. So infrared heat heats the object, not the air. Mm -hmm. So all the pins have that. As we move into spring, that's a wonderful time because that's, that's very easy time. Grass is growing, though, and so when we pasture the animals, when they go out to pasture, you just have to kind of introduce it to them slowly because the grass in the springtime is very, very rich. Mm-hmm. It's also prime parasite season, so you want to make sure the grass is long enough because the parasites only go up a couple inches on the grass and their tip eaters. Okay. So that's a consideration you need to take, too. When we move into summer, that gets trickier because the heat. So we do shear them. Usually for us, it's at the end of May. kind of depends on your climate. So for us, we do mid to late May to beginning of June, depending on how our shows are running. And we shear them because that helps them control, you know, the heat stress, getting all that fleece off. Plus, that's what we get from them. We take the fleece and that gets spun into yarn and made into product and so forth. So that's kind of harvest season for us. And then summertime, it's lots of fan, lots of water, electrolytes, keeping them comfortable for that. Mm-hmm. And then fall, um, we're just, we're preparing for winter. But okay. uh, spring and fall are our show season. So we do we travel with some of the animals. Is showing the animals the main portion of your business and then the farm tours are a nice added bonus for the community? With the shows, you don't really make any money. They, the cost is money, actually. But what you're doing is you're increasing the value of your genetics. So any anytime you show livestock, and they are considered livestock, they're classified as livestock by the USDA, you're essentially bringing forth your breeding program. You're bringing out your best of your best. And obviously, the more awards you put on an animal, the higher their their genetic value is. So the offspring from that, because you're always trying to take the progeny to the next level. So that's where the value of shows come in. What the alpaca community is trying to do is to get shows similar to cattle and horses, where there is a monetary price. With that, takes corporate sponsorship. But the alpaca community is so small, it's really hard to get that But that's one of the things the Alpac Owners Association, the AOA, they're really working hard to do that, to get more credibility into the show system for alpacas and so forth. So we hope it'll get to that at some point. So, yes, right now, tours uh, in the store really support the farm. We're pretty early in our breeding program. So this is only year four for us. We do have offspring. But once you start getting those good animals like that and we start selling them, there is there is financial value to that for the farm. And a lot of folks support themselves through that. But those are folks that have been in it, you know, 10, 15, 20, 25 years. So, so we'll get there. Where are you traveling to when you go to the shows? 
All around the country, there are some shows that are consistently in the same places. Since we're Midwest, we predominantly focus on the Midwest. Our biggest show is our national show, and that's always in the spring. And they alternate the location of that so that West Coast and East Coast can come too, but they try to keep it pretty central. This year, it's in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Last year, it was supposed to be in Colorado, but they actually moved it because of COVID. They actually moved it to Nebraska. Um, where the COVID restrictions were lessened a little bit so we could go out there. So that's that's kind of one of our biggest shows and probably one of our longest hauls. Otherwise, our first show this year is in Springfield, Illinois. There's a couple in Kansas City, Missouri. We've got some in Denver. We could travel to the coast too, but it's just a longer haul for the animals. And I'm not a big fan of trailering the animals overnight. Is the alpaca community concentrated in a certain part of the country or is it kind of spread all over? No, we're all over. But actually, that's funny. I was just looking at the the number of registered alpacas. And strangely enough, Ohio has the largest amount of alpacas in their their state, which I think is kind of weird because I don't know why. (laughs) Why would there be so many in Ohio? But they they have a strong population of alpacas there. Interesting. I wonder if that would be maybe one of the earliest places where the breeding program started and then perhaps that was what contributed. Yeah, there's a lot of big farms there. And I'm sure folks around, you know, purchased from there and so forth. So so that that could be that could be a reason. You know, they're from South America. So really climate wise, it has nothing to do with that. So they live up in the the plains and the mountainous regions in Peru and Mm other countries down there. And they handle the winter climate here fine. And like anything, they adapt. Their fleece is, the fleece on an alpaca is five to seven times warmer than wool. So it's a, it's a very thick fleece. The way, there's two breeds of alpaca, wakaya and suri, and the ones we have here on our farm are wakaya, which is kind of a fluffy fleece. Mm-hmm. Suris have a more drapey, kind of a hangy fleece. And we have two llamas that are suris. And that doesn't quite hold the heat as the body heat quite like a wakaya. So like even our Surrey llamas, we coat. So we do coat some of our animals, usually our really young or elderly ones or any anybody that's ill, we do coat them. But they handle the they handle the winter as well. I actually worry about them less in the winter. I worry about them more in the summer. Overheating? Yeah, because I can always warm them up. Heat stress is hard to control. So That makes sense. Yeah, and last summer was really hot here. Yes. So I was like, you know, we left St. Louis to get away from that. <laughs> what's going on here. Yeah, yeah it's St. Louis is rough. I've yeah, been there in the summer. I wouldn't want to raise alpacas. Other people who do, but I wouldn't want to raise alpacas in Missouri. So lots of shade trees, I guess. Lots of fans, lots of, lots of pools for them to kind of, you know, little wading pools to walk through and stuff. So is alpaca the only thing that you are showing at this point? Showing, yes, but we have other animals on the farm. I want to go back to the shearing. How does that work and how often are you doing that? So shearing is a controversial thing for a lot of folks because there's a lot of misinformation out there. You know, out on the internet, there's a couple of bad videos. The animals do have to be restrained to a certain degree for safety. We hire a professional shear. Obviously, that's going to give the best result. But two, it's best for the animal because it goes very quickly. So the, the least amount of time it's like sending your you know, two-year-old to get their first haircut. They're not necessarily thrilled about it, but it has to be done. And they're fine afterwards. And then it makes it easier for the next time they have to have it done. But generally what happens is we run two stations, so an animal in each station. So the shearer can literally, they're on their knees. They shear the one animal and just pivot and go to the next one. And then while that one's being done, we set up the next one and they just pivots back and does that. Well, what has to happen is they use a kind of rope and pulley system, and there are two circular ropes that go on their ankles and their wrists. And 
the front one is on a pulley. So the rope is pulled back to stretch the animal out. And two of my farmhands, the, two of the guys stand there and it goes very slow. So we gently lay the animal down. And then once the animal's laying down and they generally tolerate it just fine, the shear gets going. While the shear is working, I give them their yearly vaccinations. I trim, trim their feet and the shearer's assistant trims their teeth if they need it. So literally in that time, max it's like 10 minutes and they're done and they're out and they're gone you know but some people find that to be very inhumane to do that to restrain them um there are some folks will use a table it's a, it's an upright table and the animal goes on it and then the table tilts down right but it makes the process so much longer you know and so we're not necessarily worried about speed so much to get it done we're worried about speed so it's less stress on the animal and so we, we take that into consideration. We're very humane in how we do it here. I'm trying to draw a parallel to this because I think about most of the dogs that I have fostered and you have to restrain them to even clip the toenails. Is that something that would go parallel to this? Where yeah, I think so. <laughs> it I think two so. of us to hold down the dog, but we got to trim the nails. So the problem is the clippers are very sharp. Their wool is very, very thick. Okay. And, you know, by the time you shear, you probably have five, six inches of fleece on them. Yeah. And so the clippers are very big that they use. It's an electric clipper, you know, mm-hmm. like a motorized clipper mm-hmm. with a head that vibrates uh, with a blade. Okay. And you'll see them change the blades out um, several times throughout, you know, the course of shearing all the animals. Yeah. To make sure they got the sharpest blade on there, it goes fast. We were in healthcare, you know, and I used to inject people all day long and give shots and things like that. And so you'll you'll have people who, you know, they sit there and it's no big deal. You have that one person that's needle phobic and they've been like stressing about this for a week and they come in and they're crying before you even put them in the chair. And they're just, you know, the anticipation is worse than anything. You're going to have that alpaca that doesn't want anything to do with it. You know, and they're just stressing. And so if you see that video, you know, you think, oh, that poor thing's being hurt. Well, no, that's just that animal has higher anxiety than a lot of the other ones. The other ones, most of them just lay there and they don't really care. But some, they get so upset that they vomit or they'll urinate or things like that. And the best you can do is just get done. It's got to be done. They would heat stress if we didn't do it. So you have to do it. I mean, even if you didn't harvest the fiber, you have to do it because you know, they would just keep growing fleece. And at some point, just like your hair, you know, it kind of stops growing at a certain point. But you you have to do it for them. Otherwise, you'd probably kill them over the summer. That makes sense. Once you've sheared them, what does the process look like after that? The most valuable part of the fleece is the blanket. That's the middle section that goes across their back and down towards their belly. Not the belly so much per se, but towards that area. And so when the shearer takes that off, they can literally almost take that off in one piece so that's why we call it a blanket. And that we put onto special paper. Some of those get sent to shows. So there are walking flea shows where the animal goes in and the animal walks into and a judge values them on their just their fleece. There's halter shows where it's 50% on their fleece, 50% on their body conformation. That's more for breeding stock. And then there are just flea shows where you send the blanket that came off, not the animal, into a show and just that fleece is evaluated. So that's the most valuable part. And so we usually have that for a year before we send it out to the mill to process because we're sending it to shows. So it'll travel around the country. And that's nice because we can send those out to the East Coast and West Coast for flea shows and the animal doesn't have to travel. And so it's another way to value your animal without actually having to take the animal to a show. 
And that has the highest comfort factor. It's the softest. We use that for things that sit close to the skin. And then the the top of the shoulders and the neck, those are in the top of any of the legs. It's considered seconds. And we'll use that for, for other items um, that, that ne- don't necessarily sit close to the, the skin for felting or for dryer balls, things like that. And then even the leg hair, if we shear some of that off, we use that for carding and doing, we wrap our soap in it. It's kind of like a built-in loofah. So our, our farm soap that we make out of our sheep's milk, we, we cart it in and then wrap it in alpaca fleece. So that's pretty cool. Or we make dryer balls and things like that. So you put those in your, your dryer and it increases the efficiency of your drying time and so forth. So alpaca is hypoallergenic. It wicks moisture. It is flame resistant and it's warmer than wool. So it has a lot of great redeeming qualities. We're going to pause here. Stay tuned for next week's episode where we talk about the farm tours and all of the animals and how you can get out and try Eagle Eye Farm. That wraps up this episode. Thank you for listening. Be sure to rate, review, share, and subscribe to the podcast. That's one of those small ways that you can help support the podcast and help others to find it. Make sure you're also visiting getoutandtry.com often, keeping you connected to the calendar of fun and happenings in the St. Croix Valley area. Until next time, find some ways to connect with your community. Support those hardworking small businesses that host all the fun in the valley. Go, get out and try.